Good evening, and welcome to the Locked On Winnipeg Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host, Harrison Lee, an avid Winnipeg Jets fan and an online blogger. You can follow me on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and follow our official podcast Twitter at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. For those of you who are first-time listeners, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Megaphone, Apple, and Google. We upload and record every Monday through Friday evening, so make sure you're following and subscribed to get the latest and greatest in Winnipeg Jets news. On tonight's episode, we'll be taking a look at some of Winnipeg's divisional rivals, as well as the NHL standings, and a brief overview of tonight's game against the Dallas Stars. Clocking in on our first spot on Winnipeg's divisional rivals list are the Colorado Avalanche. The Avs are currently second in the Central Division with a 17-8-2 record, good for 36 points on the year. They're currently winning against the Montreal Canadiens, so they'll move to within four points of first place in the division. The Avs are a curious team this season. They face some serious injury struggles, not unlike the Winnipeg Jets, but to two of their key contributing forwards, Gabriel Landeskog and Mikko Rantanen. Under ordinary circumstances, most teams would crumble losing both of those top two forwards. Instead, the Avs remain one of the best teams in the West, by record, and continue to put on an offensive show wherever they go. At the center of this scoring whirlwind is none other than Nathan McKinnon. The 24-year-old centerman acted as a surrogate McDavid during the playoffs last season, and really opened a lot of eyes as to just how dynamic and fun he is to watch. Nathan is one of the most talented offensive centers in the NHL, and has some of the most explosive skating and best shots you'll see. Currently, he sits at 44 points in 30 games with nearly 66% coming at even strength. During the injury stretch where Ronton and Landeskog were both out, Nathan McKinnon propelled the Avs to the second-place spot in the Central Division and has continued to churn out absolutely unbelievable numbers. While McKinnon may be bearing a lot of the offensive load by himself, he certainly has quite a bit of support in a number of talented depth forwards and recent acquisitions. During the offseason, Colorado acquired both Andre Burakovsky and Jonas Donskoy. Burakovsky was exchanged for a draft pick from the Washington Capitals. The young Swedish RFA winger was struggling to find ice time under head coaches Todd Reardon and Barry Trotz, so he needed a change of scenery and came to Colorado to find it. The Caps and Avs have had dealings before, insofar as Philip Grubauer, former Caps backup, is currently one of their top starters in Colorado. Burakovsky has been something of a revelation, scoring 21 points in 24 games. Those who saw him with the Caps probably noted that he was an occasionally frustrating forward, but given his relative time on ice, was extremely productive. Colorado put its faith in him, and he's rewarded them handsomely. Newcomer Jonas Donskoy, signed in free agency, has also been a fantastic forward for the young Colorado Avs squad. The ex-Sharks winger has been an absolutely dominant force on the ice, and continues to drive their middle six play, and occasionally take top six time when need be. I'm personally a fan of Donskoy, and he reminds me in some respects of a slightly different approach Matthew Perot. Uh, Both Donskoy and Perot have a very positive impact on driving two-way play, both in the offensive and defensive ends. Like Perot, Donskoy is very intelligent and has a heady impact in the offensive zone. He's got great puck distribution, an intelligent shot, and picks his space as well. While he was typically cast in a more bottom six role for the Sharks, Donskoy has found a great niche role with the Avs, especially during their recent spate of injuries. His contract remains great value, and he's a significantly positive addition to the Colorado Avalanche. I would be, however, remiss to overlook Kale McCarr, the young rookie defenseman out of Denver University. McCarr made his NHL debut during the playoffs last season, and has been an absolute fixture and a powerhouse for the Colorado Avalanche offense. His explosive, driving edge work, powerful inside cut, and fantastic shot make him one of the most dangerous defensemen on the ice. McCarr has been a source of highlight reel goals day after day, and remains one of the most interesting defensemen to watch every time you see him. He and McKinnon put on an absolute clinic, and it's so much fun watching them work in the offensive zone. 
while neither player may be a defensive specialist, they sure know how to score a lot of points. Thus far, Colorado's blitzing assault has managed to propel them pretty high in the divisional standings, so I'd expect the Avs to give Winnipeg quite a bit of trouble when they next meet. Winnipeg owns a fantastic mark against the Central Division this season, but I would not count on Winnipeg coming out on the winning end of their next battle. Colorado are certainly not cup favorites by any stretch of the imagination, but they're a very dangerous team, and I expect them to go pretty deep in the playoffs. Provided, that is, that their goaltending gets healthy again. In stark contrast to Colorado's quick-paced, rapid attack are the St. Louis Blues. Last season's Stanley Cup champs are probably playing some of the most boring hockey you'll see for an 18-6-6 team. The Blues have an interesting mix of 20-plus point scores and pretty solid goaltending, but generally speaking, they aren't getting that many shots on net, especially from the most dangerous areas of the ice. Previous teams under head coach Craig Berube tended not to perform all that well, so I'd expect at some point that the Blues will start to regress and look a little worse as time goes on. While they don't generate a whole lot of offense for, they don't give up that many scoring chances against either, so they don't have to ask all that much of their goaltending tandem. I think the Blues are comfortably a playoff squad, but I don't think that they're going to repeat as cup contenders either. I say this, of course, but they also still have guys like uh, Jaden Schwartz, Ryan O'Reilly, David Perron, a lot of skilled talent on that squad. Unfortunately, the very serious injury to Vladimir Tarasenko is going to make their season a little bit harder than it should be. Tarasenko's still out for the next few months until his shoulder heals up, so scoring will need to be done by committee from their depth forwards and young prospects. Robert Thomas taking the next step would definitely be a significant boost to the scoring unit. He's arguably one of St. Louis's best prospects, and when Thomas is on his game, he can absolutely dominate the depth competition. As Thomas continues to develop, I wouldn't be surprised to see him take a second-line anchoring spot at some point down the road. In the role of good but maybe not amazing are the Dallas Stars, who are currently outside of the top three of the division. They trail Winnipeg for the third spot in the Central by two points. Dallas is kind of like the St. Louis Blues, only their defensive commitment as of late has started to wane a bit. Jim Montgomery's teams have typically been shot suppression experts, but recently the Stars have started to surrender a lot more opportunities to their opponents. Their lineup is a curious mixture of depth talent and underrated stars, including Alexander Radulov, Tyler Sagan, and Jamie Benn. They also get value out of guys like Jason Dickinson, and their aggressive forecheck and speedy turnover creation tend to cause a lot of trouble for teams like Winnipeg who can't clear their own zone. Recently, however, the Stars have had issues defending their own zone, and the way that they're conceding scoring opportunities is a little bit surprising. There have been major gaps in their defensive coverage near the blue line, and they seem to give up some odd man situations on more than one occasion. Dallas as a whole is actually pretty decent, and I feel like they're a little bit of an underrated squad. Um, they're not really in Stanley Cup contention, but they've got quality talent like Miro Heiskanen, Rope Hintz, and some other young kids who are starting to make their mark in the NHL. By the same token, some of their best players are also starting to show their age. Jamie Benn and Corey Perry certainly aren't spring chickens, and Corey Perry, though he's a recent addition, still has that veteran savvy that you'd want, but his on-ice production and results haven't been there. I think the Stars have had a hard time trying to find a replacement for Matt Zuccarello, who departed from Minnesota during the offseason. While not signing Zuccarello may seem like a net negative, he's also in his 30s, so it makes a lot of sense for the Stars who probably want to get a younger forward and don't want to commit to a lot of term for an older player. As it is, I do think Dallas will be a, a bit of a tough out if they make the playoffs. I think they're going to squeak in through a wild card spot unless Winnipeg starts to stumble late in the season. Um, but beyond that, I don't know that I have any particular expectations for that team. To my eyes, they still have a couple of goal-scoring gaps and needs that they need to fill either at the trade deadline or through the draft before I can start to think of them as a serious contender. Speaking of teams in desperate need of goal-scoring talent, we're going to be taking a look at the Nashville Predators in just a minute. Welcome back! Are you ready to talk about the dumbest team in the NHL, the Nashville Predators? 
Just kidding, they're not them at all. They are, however, in something of a funk as of late. They're currently uh, in 12th place in the West, which is highly unusual for them. The Preds are typically one of the better teams in the Central Division, but this year they've managed a 12-10-5 record. Obviously, the season is still young, relatively speaking, so there's a lot of time for the Preds to recover. That said, I'm not 100% sure that the Preds are actually going to be all that good this year. Over the past couple of seasons, I think we've seen that, generally speaking, they've had a, a limited amount of scoring talent. A lot of their forwards that tend to, to drive their offense are, are really good play drivers, but they don't really collect a whole lot of points. They lack somebody like Mark Shifley or, or Patrick Liney, guys who are immense goal scorers and points getters in their own right. For as much as, as Nashville prides itself on really good depth play um, and a lot of offensive scoring chance creation, I think Nashville also has an issue with actually finishing on those opportunities. I think you get a sense of this issue when you look at their uh, stats page and realize that Roman Yosi and Ryan Ellis are two of their top three scoring skaters. They have a lot of guys with double-digit points, but no one's really taken the lead in scoring for this team. Matt Duchesne has 20 points, Cali Yarncrook has 18, Philip Forsberg has 18, Ryan Johansson has 17 points. There's a lot of points distribution there, but you kind of think about it. You would want a little bit more elite production from some of those top-end guys. Kyle Turris getting constantly benched doesn't really help things either. I think the Turris trade, in retrospect, has ended up a lot worse off than people were expecting. He's still a talented forward, but he's definitely not like a top six guy. I think he's more of a third liner than anything. LaViolette has recently taken to healthy scratching him, which I am hard-pressed to come up with a reasonable explanation why he'd even do that. I get that Turris hasn't exactly panned out as well as Nashville has hoped, but I also don't think you want to take away one of your scoring options. Nashville doesn't exactly have the luxury of being picky and choosy with who it ices on its forward units. I do think that Nashville probably wasn't anticipating having below 900 goaltending uh, from both of its goaltenders. Saros and Rene have actually been pretty bad this season. Rene is rocking in 899 and Saros is rocking in 891. That's not really playoff goaltending at all. It's not even regular season goaltending that's enough to, to get you to the playoffs. It's not like the Preds are giving up that many scoring opportunities either. I just feel like the goaltending tandem hasn't worked out well this season. Rene's getting older and Saros has had some issues this past year. Um, Saros had some confidence issues last season, and I think that he did have a dip in play recently, but I did not expect him to be this bad this season. He's supposed to be their goaltender of the future, and right now he's really struggling. Young guys can have issues, especially as a netminder. I mean, Connor Hellebuck, uh, past couple of seasons, has been very up and down. You know, following his Vezina Canada C season, he had one of his more mediocre, middling, occasionally bad seasons. I hate saying goalies are voodoo just because it sounds a little bit silly, but goalies really are voodoo. It's kind of hard to get a sense of their year-to-year performance. Almost no one is as consistent as someone like Lundqvist. It's extraordinarily rare. I think that ultimately leaves me with a lot of questions about where Nashville really sits in this division. I feel like they're a decent team. They might be good enough to make the, the playoffs, probably as a wildcard seed. Um, kind of like the Stars, I feel like they're in a position where they need a lot of scoring help, and I feel like Ailey Tolvanen was supposed to help with that. Hasn't really panned out yet, um, so they might make some moves at the trade deadline. That said, I feel like philosophically they're still driving a lot of their offense from their back end, and in general, I don't really care for that principle. I know that it worked a couple of seasons ago when they, they went all the way to the cup final, but I generally think that you want your forward scoring the majority of your points for you. Um, your defensemen aren't usually going to be your, your primary goal-getter, so you need a lot more forward talent up front, especially to drive your power play and even strength offense. 
the Preds are a team that deals with a lot of market inefficiencies and tries to exploit those um, and maximize utility value out of the guys that they do have. But at some point, I think that they do need just to shell out and get some goal-scoring talent because I think they've hit the max efficiency of what they've got right now. This has been the case for several seasons, but now the Preds are starting to see a, a, a max return on their yield, and that return really hasn't been anything to write home about. Uh, they haven't gotten all that close to the cup final since their last visit, and I feel like as the time goes on, the team is only getting older. I think Laviolette's a pretty decent coach, but I don't know that he's like the long-term fit for this squad. I think that the Preds do need to start thinking about a, a more open-minded, progressive coach, somebody who can get more value out of the team that they have. Um, Philip Forsberg sitting under 20 points at this stage of the season is kind of nuts. Actually, most of their forwards sitting under 20 points at this stage of the season is not good. When Matt Duchesne is the only one who's got like 20 points on the year and he's a center and he's sandwiched between two defensemen on the scoring sheet, that's really not an ideal situation. I saw an article earlier that said that they should stay away from Taylor Hall if uh, Hall becomes available from the Devils. And I'm kind of of the opinion that that's mm, maybe a decent idea, um, only if they intend to use him as a rental. I think that if they do trade for him, they should consider locking him up long term. Mostly because the Preds are starting to run out of assets to spend on rentals, and I think that they need to to find a, a consolidated core um, and sign a really high-end player who can put up big numbers for your team. I think that they need a high-end, playmaking, elite scorer, and that's what Taylor Hall is. I'd be wary of giving Taylor like an eight-year deal, especially because he'll be 30-something by the time that deal ends, but, I mean, the Preds are all old and they're not getting younger. Um, and I think at this point they need to be in win-now mode unless they start thinking about a long-term rebuild, um, which I don't think you're going to be able to sell to the fan base. I mean, the team has consistently been in the playoffs, and I think it would be a lot to say, mm, we need to start over again, especially when they still have guys like Arvidsson and Forsberg in their primes. Given that, I think Nashville needs to kind of bust open the purse and figure out exactly how they're going to make more out of this team. They have a very decent core, and it's not like they're missing all that much. They just need somebody to get on the end of the scoring chances that they're creating and really be their bona fide number one goal scorer. They have all of the really talented depth units that um, can drive their bottom six and middle six play, but they still need somebody on that first line who can really be the rock around the team and somebody that they can really build around. I say all this, but I'm also not sure that they can really afford Taylor Hall at this stage. I think that they've given up a lot of assets over the years and it, it's hard to say what they have left in the tank. The Girard trade is probably not aged as well as they'd hoped, even though it looked okay at the time. The Preds are in a weird spot, and I'm not really sure that it's going to get any better anytime soon, so remains to be seen what's going to happen with them. Speaking of teams in a weird spot, up next we're going to talk about Winnipeg uh, against the Dallas Stars tonight. A very strange game given what we just saw between the two teams uh, this past Tuesday. You hate to see it, man. You really hate to see it. Remember how I had like an ounce and a smidgen of hope after watching the Jets kind of embarrass the Stars back in Winnipeg? Yeah, well, eh, I think we kind of got a taste of the uh, the real Jets again. Uh, the one that's been here for most of the past several months. I don't know what to say, man. Every time Winnipeg comes to Dallas, bad things happen. And like, the Jets just don't show up for a solid period and a half. And again, it happened tonight. Winnipeg in the first period basically got schooled for a solid 20 minutes. Hellebuck was literally the only reason the Jets weren't down by like six goals. The Jets basically got backhanded for, you know, the entire period and had almost no response. Winnipeg did create a couple of nice, dangerous looking opportunities, but then on the on the opportunities that they had, they didn't really do anything to convert it. The Jets had like one sequence where I think it was Shifley or Line forced a turnover, and they both had a two on O and they like somehow Shifley tripped and fell and the puck got cleared out. 
If you're not going to be putting that many pucks on net, then you need to take advantage of the opportunities that you are gifted. And really, tonight just felt like one giant missed opportunity. I felt like Winnipeg made a statement back on home ice, and then tonight was such a letdown. I get it, you're not going to win every game, it's been a tough schedule, you've been traveling a lot, I get all that. I think Winnipeg has done well enough given the circumstances, but that said, I really felt like tonight's effort was just nowhere near acceptable. The guys who struggled the most were actually kind of surprising. I mean, Mark Shifley was straight up bad tonight, and I feel like he let out his frustration on a lot of really bad penalties. He actually took like a, an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, which Mark Shifley never does. He's actually a pretty disciplined guy for the most part, so this was an act out from a guy who's usually pretty quiet. I felt like it was sort of an undisciplined act that was a metaphor for the entire game. Winnipeg just didn't look in it at any point, and I feel like, I don't know, Adam Jones once had this funny quote, he said, sometimes you just suck, and I'm like, yeah, well, <laughs> this has been too frequent of an occurrence for the Jets, and I feel like at some point they, they kind of need to sit down and say, you know, we just have to be better. I mean, I'm sure it's a frustrating experience feeling like, once again, you're underperforming against a team that really shouldn't be giving you this much trouble, but uh, that's that's the way it goes, um, and Winnipeg are, are definitely not going to have a uh, a nice trip home after what was supposed to be a pretty decent game. I will say that Hellebuck was, once again, a bright spot. A couple of the goals that went in against him, I'm sure he'll be upset about, but it definitely wasn't his fault. I feel like Winnipeg just didn't really show up and, and didn't really give him any support. Now, that was true for about two periods of the game. And then period three rolled around, and Winnipeg suddenly woke up and became a totally different team. How they played against Dallas in the home game earlier this week was exactly what they did in the third period, and I'm really surprised that they actually had the fight to come back and put up a much better effort than they did in the first period. Wheeler got a bit of an odd bounce and a lucky goal, and then from there, it was just all Winnipeg. The Jets basically had like a 15 or 20 minute power play, it felt like, and the Jets were just so good. This was the 2017-2018 team that used to dominate zone possession and create all sorts of chaos down low in front of the goalie. I miss this team so much, and it was nice to see that the Jets could at least do that tonight. What was even more impressive was the teamwork and passing that actually led to Winnipeg tying the game and taking it to overtime. The goal that Shifley ended up getting was a nice setup from Patrick Laine, but there were a ton of skaters who actually contributed to the sequence of play right before Shifley scored. I have to praise Neil Pionk in particular, who I felt had a really good night, generally speaking. Um, Winnipeg's defense wasn't very good, but Pionk was very active in transitioning the puck in and out of the zones, and I felt like he was very good in the offensive zone. He almost had a really nice highlight reel goal himself, um, but was very, very unfortunate to get blocked off by about five different defenders, so nice effort from him. I have to say I'm really disappointed in, in the NHL refing tonight. I felt like a lot of the calls, especially in the third period, and the overtime call that ended up sinking the Jets, they were all pretty bad. I mean, Dallas got away with some really blatant hooks and stuff, and Winnipeg ended up getting screwed over by the by the Zebras. I mean, this is... I don't usually complain about officiating, but tonight was especially bad. If I'm saying something about it, then that means it was a pretty obvious uh, mistake on, on the part of the officiating crew, and I really feel like they ended up tipping the end of the game. Um... But I am pleased with how Winnipeg responded after two periods of basically doing nothing. That third period was one of the best periods they've played, well, since Tuesday, I guess. Um, and I was very impressed with the heart and fight that they showed. I really want to see more of that on a more consistent basis, and also not for the last 20 minutes of the game. If they can start out and open these games a lot stronger than they have been, I feel like Winnipeg would be in much better straits. But 
they did take three out of four points in a home-and-home series, so I will absolutely take that. It could have been a lot worse, and after those first two periods, I totally thought Winnipeg was done. I thought that they didn't have a chance of coming back, but once again, the Jets surprised me. Winnipeg probably owes Connor Hellebuck yet another round of beers. He was uh, he was one of the big difference makers in this game, and again, he continues to be the MVP of this team during the season. I've been very happy with his performance so far, and I feel like anyone should be pretty pleased with what he's put together. All that said, Winnipeg's on to play Anaheim next, um, Corey Perry's old stomping grounds. Great to see the Ducks again after we uh, we shut them out the last time, so I'm kind of hoping for Lightning to strike twice again. With uh, with If Hellebuck starts, I do expect the Jets to get another win. Um, Anaheim was decent in the last game. I think that they got a lot of net front chances, especially late in the game, but I don't really expect that Hellebuck will have too much trouble. With how Winnipeg responded in this third period against the Stars, I have high hopes that at least, you know, on this next upcoming game on Sunday, that they'll put together a much more complete effort. Alright, folks, thanks for listening. That wraps up tonight's show, and I hope you enjoyed it. As always, follow us on Twitter at HLLivingLoco and at LO underscore Winnipeg Jets. Make sure you subscribe, and have a great evening. Go Jets go!